0: I'm Nicondro Yanachi, producer of We the People. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. On today's show, we take you to the hallowed halls of the U.S. Supreme Court, where Jeff recently had the honor of addressing the Supreme Court Historical Society. The occasion? The 215th anniversary of Chief Justice John Marshall's appointment to the court. In his lecture, Jeff explores the great Chief Justice's constitutional clashes. With Thomas Jefferson and his influence on justices ranging from the Jeffersonian Louis Brandeis to the Marshallian William Howard Taft. Before we hear Jeff's talk, though, I have two brief announcements. First, the We the People team needs your help to make this show even better. Go to bit.ly/slash WTP feedback to share your feedback. Your voice is very important to us. We would be so grateful if you could take just a few minutes to tell us what you think about the format, the guests, the topics, and so much more. Again, go to bit.ly slash WTPfeedback to share your thoughts. And second, on April 13th, the National Constitution Center will be the headquarters for the second annual Freedom Day Freedom Day is an opportunity to encourage people of all ages to appreciate their freedoms as Americans, to understand the relationship between the Declaration and the Constitution, and to encourage dialogue on the meaning of freedom and its relevance in modern society. There will be exciting programs at the Center all day with guests including Susan Herman, president of the ACLU, and David Rubenstein, philanthropist and co-founder of the Carlyle Group as well as events in several other cities many great partners are involved including the foundation for individual rights and education the american civil liberties union facebook and more so it's going to be a great day go to constitutioncenter.org/freedom-day to learn more and to find out how you can participate again that's constitutioncenter.org/freedom hyphen day. Now, without further babbling from me, we take you to the Supreme Court.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, it is wonderful to be here. I'm so honored that Chief Justice Roberts took the time to introduce this magnificent occasion. I'm also honored that the Supreme Court Historical Society and the John Marshall Foundation have invited me to celebrate this august occasion, namely the 215th anniversary of the great Chief Justice's appointment to the Supreme Court. I bring you greetings from the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. This remarkable institution sits right on Independence Mall, across from Independence Hall and also across from the Old City Hall where the Supreme Court sat until 1800. The National Constitution Center has an inspiring charter from the U.S. Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a non-partisan basis. And that is a mission of which Chief Justice Marshall, who brought together Federalists and Republicans, would have been proud. I'm also delighted to report that we are working with the John Marshall Foundation uh, on the following exciting project. Uh, You know downstairs there is this beautiful statue of the great Chief that Chief Justice Roberts referred to. Uh, It was cast by Uh, a a sculptor, uh, Story, who was the son of Joseph Story, uh, Marshall's great comrade in arms. Two castings of this statue exist. One, as we all know, is at the U.S. Court of Appeals in D.C. on John Marshall Plaza. The other, at the moment, is behind the Philadelphia Art Museum. I am delighted to report that the Philadelphia Art Museum is willing to work with us to move the statue to the front of the National Constitution Center. And I cannot imagine a more fitting symbol for visitors across America and across the globe as they visit America's only museum of the US Constitution and also our national center for bipartisan constitutional education and debate. All right, with those introductory words, I have to confess that I now require my constitutional reading glasses. (laughs) And I um, am now uh, honored to begin reflections on a topic that I think we can call Marshall and Jefferson, Taft and Brandeis. Why did I choose this unusual pair? Uh, Well, let's set the stage by remembering that the great chief, John Marshall, was nominated by President Adams on January 20th, 1801. Adams had just gotten a letter from John Jay declining the Supreme Court appointment. And since Marshall just happened to be in the room at the time that he got the letter, the president offered him the vacant seat. Marshall accepted on the spot. This confirms that in life, timing is everything. <laughs> Marshall was confirmed by the Senate a week later on January 27th, and he took office on February 4th, although he continued to serve as Secretary of State at Adams's request until the President's term expired on March 4th. So we are celebrating the 215th anniversary of Marshall's elevation uh, almost to the day. Adams famously said, My gift of John Marshall to the people of the United States was the proudest act of my life. And Marshall has been widely praised for transforming the Supreme Court into what his biographer, John Edward Smith, calls a dominant force in American life. As all of us know well, Marshall established the independence of the judiciary at a time when Republicans were determined to attack the largely Federalist bench by making judges entirely subservient to popular will. Under Marshall's leadership, there were few dissents, largely because of his exceptional influence over prickly and strong-minded colleagues on the court. Indeed, it was Marshall's skill in establishing convivial personal relations among his fellow justices that helped cement the court's authority at a vulnerable moment in its early history. By expertly wielding the powers of the Chief Justice, such as the ability to assign opinions, as well as by instituting administrative reforms, such as abolishing the practice of seriatim, or separate opinions, he was able to persuade other justices of different ideological persuasions to join him in a series of unanimous opinions. So when Marshall inherited the court, it was a weak institution compared to Congress and the president. By the time he left, the Supreme Court was a significant player in the American scheme of government. So all this is familiar and well known to us all, and I thought for an occasion as Uh, distinguished as this I should at least try to say something new. So a few years ago in a book about the Supreme Court and judicial temperament I argued that Marshall's constitutional clashes with Thomas Jefferson about the scope of congressional executive and judicial power continue to set the terms for our constitutional debates today. And as the chief mentioned I've just finished another similarly riveting book. (laughs) This one is called Louis D Brandeis American Prophet and it will be published on June 1st, which is the 100th anniversary of Justice Brandeis' Supreme Court nomination, and I'm so pleased to see Mel Brandeis's Brandeis' great biographer in the audience, and I understand that Frank Gilbert, uh, Justice Brandeis' grandson, is here with us as well. Uh, the book argues that Brandeis was the greatest critic of bigness in business and government since his hero, Thomas Jefferson. Finally, I'm just starting a new book on William Howard Taft, which argues that Marshall was Taft's hero, and that Taft was one of the most successful chiefs since Marshall himself. So that's why I'm eager to compare the clashes and compromises of these two great teams of constitutional rivals, Marshall and Jefferson on the one hand, and the Marshallian Taft and the Jeffersonian Brandeis on the other. Comparison of these two teams of rivals has led me to the following thesis. Marshall and Jefferson were personal and ideological opponents who privately derided each other in colorful terms. Jefferson accused Marshall of twistifications, and Marshall reciprocated by calling Jefferson the great llama of the mountain. It sounds terrible, but it's not clear what it means to be a llama, I'm not sure. (laughs) Something, Something to do with being at Charlottesville and looking down at people from the top of the mountain. Nevertheless, Marshall became the most su- successful chief justice in American history because of his ability to win over Jeffersonian justices who were his ideological opponents through compromise and leadership. By the same token, Taft and Brandeis also were personal and ideological opponents. Brandeis exposed a cover-up by President Taft in a highly publicized congressional hearing, and Taft reciprocated by opposing Brandeis's confirmation in vigorous terms. He said, he is a muckraker, an emotionalist for his own purposes, a socialist prompted by jealousy, a hypocrite, a man who has certain high ideals in his imagination, but who is utterly unscrupulous in method in reaching them. Sounds like the great llama of the mountain. (laughs) Nevertheless, Taft was a highly successful chief justice because he shared Marshall's goal of what he called massing the court ultimately persuading Brandeis, Holmes, and other dissenting justices to join him in a series of unanimous opinions. So after Taft is appointed Chief Justice in 1921, he graciously buries the hatchet and invites Brandeis to serve with him on a committee to explore ways of increasing the efficiency and distributing the workload of district judges, which was a topic that interested them both. The overture succeeded. Taft later reported that Brandeis and I are on most excellent terms and have some sympathetic views. He cannot be any more cordial to me than I am to him, so the honors are easy. Brandeis reciprocated Taft's good feelings, reporting that all went happily in the conference room with Taft. When we differ, we agree to differ without any ill feelings. It's all very friendly. Both Marshall and Taft were successful in part because of their temperaments. Joseph Story said he loved Marshall's laugh, which was too hearty for an intriguer. While Holmes on the court also praised Taft's ready laugh. To his friend Frederick Pollock, he said, we're very happy with the present chief. He's good-humored, laughs readily, and does keep things moving. Both Marshall and Taft recognized the importance of the team dynamic. Marshall persuaded his colleagues to live together in the same boarding house where they would discuss cases over a hogshead of Marshall's favorite drink, Madeira. And as many of you know, once in that unfortunate attempt at judicial restraint, the justices resolved to drink only on days when it rained. Marshall looked out the window and observed that on sunny days, our jurisdiction extends over so large a territory that the doctrine of chances makes it certain that it must be raining somewhere. (laughs) Am I allowed to share the fact that the John Marshall Society presented the Chief Justice uh, with a commemorative bottle of Madeira, and he assured uh, the group that it would only be used for official purposes. (laughs) (laughs) So if the unanimity rate in, 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 in the Supreme Court rises, uh, now, as it did in Marshall's day, we can attribute it to the Madeira. Uh, Taft too, cultivated the certain team dynamic. He was responsible for the building of this palatial Supreme Court building, uh, where the justice can continue to discuss cases over a hogshead of Madeira, or at least over a convivial lunch. But Marshall and Taft were also successful because of their willingness to compromise by putting a premium on unanimity and filing few dissents. Listen to these statistics. Marshall wrote only seven dissents in 34 years on the bench, only one of which involved a constitutional issue. I'll I'll say a word about that in a moment. And Taft wrote 20 dissents in total. As a result, both Marshall and Taft were able to persuade their colleagues to join their shared vision of broadly construing national power and property rights. At the same time, Marshall and Taft were aided by the moderation and compromises of their ideological antagonist. Jefferson acquiesced in Marshall's moderate conception of judicial review because of his bipartisan belief that we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists. And the Jeffersonian Brandeis, too, often acquiesced in Taft's vision of unanimity because of their shared concern for the institutional legitimacy of the court. At its heart, the success of Marshall and Taft is a tribute to their moderation, collegiality, and willingness to compromise, but it's also a tribute to the fact that these patriotic qualities were shared by their opponents, Thomas Jefferson, and Jefferson's philosophical successor, Louis Brandeis. Okay, that's the thesis. Let me see if I can persuade you of it. Uh, Marshall and Jefferson, of course, were distant cousins who had circled each other warily during the tumultuous years leading to Jefferson's election. But the election of 1800 was a clash of political principles more than a clash of personalities. The Federalists, led by Adams, supported a strong federal government to preserve the Union, feared unchecked majority rule, and hoped that independent federal courts would check democratic excesses, which the Federalists interpreted to include criticisms of Adams himself. The Republicans, led by Jefferson, were suspicious of national power and the federal courts, believed strongly in states' rights and the rule of local majorities, and insisted that most constitutional disputes should be settled by elected legislatures rather than unelected judges. In November 1800, the election is thrown into the House of Representatives after Jefferson and his running mate Aaron Burr finished in a tie with 73 electoral votes each. Rumors spread of a Federalist plot to deprive Jefferson of the presidency and to install Marshall, who was then serving as Adams's Secretary of State. Adams, having lost his bid for reelection and recognizing that the judiciary would be the last stronghold of his party, unexpectedly appointed Marshall to the Supreme Court on January 27, 1801, and the lame duck Federalist Senate confirmed him just a few days later. The lame duck president and Congress then worked frantically to consolidate the power of the Federalists in the judiciary before it was too late. Congress created a series of new judicial offices to give Adams the chance to make midnight appointments and also reduced the size of the Supreme Court to deny Jefferson the chance to make appointments of his own. On February 17th, the House elected Jefferson as president on the 36th ballot. On March 1st, three days before Jefferson's inauguration, Adams famously stayed up late, signing the new Judicial Commissions, which were notarized by John Marshall, still performing double duty as the lame-duck Secretary of State. Nevertheless, after taking the oath of office, Jefferson behaved with relative moderation. He did not attempt a complete purge of Federalist officeholders, but only those guilty of misconduct or appointed after Adams knew he had been defeated. And in a bipartisan gesture, he invited Marshall to administer the oath of office. So what were the constitutional clashes between the Federalists led by Marshall and the the Republicans led by Jefferson? Marshall, like Jefferson and Adams, or or, uh, forgive me, Marshall, like Washington and Adams, was a skeptic of direct democracy and preferred the checks and balances imposed by the Constitution. Federalists emphasized the sacred rights of property, feared mob rule, and framed the Constitution as a bulwark against what some viewed to be the rising tide of anarchy. But because Marshall greatly favored nationalism over partisanship, he was not a doctrinaire federalist. For example, he was critical of the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, causing Northern Federalists to criticize him for being too moderate. Above all, as Jean Edward Smith puts it, Marshall was an ardent nationalist who revered George Washington. His long standing animosity toward his kinsman, Thomas Jefferson, can be traced in part to Jefferson's partisan criticism of Adams in the late 1790s. Marshall also cultivated his nationalist political views while fighting for the army in the Revolutionary War, where he developed what he famously called his habit of considering America as my country and Congress as my government. Moreover, according to Smith, Marshall was not a reactionary. He believed strongly in representative government, vigorously defended a free press, and recoiled instinctively from the aristocratic pretensions of some of his fellow Federalists. After serving as a Congressman and a Secretary of State, he soon became the nation's most prominent Federalist, but he led the party's more moderate wing. By contrast, Jefferson, a stalwart Virginian, was the head of the rival Republican Party. The Republicans emphasized majority rule, deplored the checks and balances built into the federal system, and sought to employ their power at the ballot box on behalf of debtors rather than creditors, the producing many rather than the oligarchic few. Louis Brandeis, who was content to be called a Jeffersonian, had a favorite book about his hero, which he read in 1927. It was Albert J. Knox Jefferson, and Brandeis was so enthusiastic about it that he suggested it should be distributed to every school child in Kentucky. Knock was a foe of the New Deal and he called Jefferson the great libertarian. Nock praised Jefferson for attacking the increasingly powerful federal judiciary as a haven for monopolists and the exploiting classes. He saw the Supreme Court under the leadership of Chief Justice Marshall as an instrument of centralization And Marshall wrote to William Johnson in 1823 that he feared no danger more than, quote, the consolidation of our government by the noiseless and therefore unalarming instrumentality of the Supreme Court. Jefferson deplored Marshall as a crafty chief judge who sophisticates the law to his mind by the turn of his own reasoning, construing our constitution from a coordination of general and special government to a general and supreme one alone. Jefferson, like Louis Brandeis, was a foe not of capitalism, but of monopoly. And in his hatred of monopoly, Jefferson was not alone among the American founders. The Boston Tea Party, which sparked the American Revolution, was a rebellion against the government-granted monopoly held by the East India Company. After the Constitutional Convention, Jefferson expressed grave concern about government-granted monopolies of trade. He complained to James Madison that the Constitution contained no Bill of Rights, protecting, among other basic liberties, restrictions against monopolies. And Jefferson supported the following constitutional amendment. Monopolies may be allowed to persons for their own productions in literature and their own inventions in the arts for a term not exceeding a certain number of years, but for no longer term and for no other purpose. Madison responded that the federal government should have the power to grant charters of incorporation but his proposal was voted down on the ground that it might lead to monopolies of every sort, as George Mason put it. Madison also resisted the constitutional amendment proposed by six states and supported by Jefferson that would have provided that Congress do not grant monopolies or erect any company with exclusive advantages of commerce. In his argument justifying the constitutionality of the Bank of the United States, Alexander Hamilton invoked the argument that these states believed that Congress had inherent power to create trade companies or corporations, but believed that the power shouldn't be used to grant exclusive privileges. Nevertheless, Jefferson insisted that Hamilton's Bank of the United States violated the Constitution because the notion that Congress had implied powers to charter corporations clashed with the 10th Amendment. The nationalist Marshall rejected this argument in the McCulloch case. Marshall's biographer, James Bradley Thayer, was Brandeis' favorite teacher in law school, and also the great advocate of judicial abstinence. In his wonderful uh, short biography of Marshall, which Brandeis must have read, he describes Jefferson's excitement in 1810, when he concluded, at length then, we have a chance of getting a Republican majority in the Supreme Judiciary. He expressed his confidence in the appointment of a decided Republican with nothing equivocal about him. Jefferson suggested Judge Tyler of Virginia reminding President Madison of Marshall's rancorous hostility to the country. But Madison appointed Joseph Story, who Jefferson called a pseudo-Republican. Story became Marshall's most enthusiastic supporter. How did Marshall win over not only Story, but other Jeffersonian justices? Marshall's appealing personality had obvious benefits. He had a knack for remaining friends with his political opponents. Patrick Henry crossed party lines to support him during his race for Congress, because of their mutual affection. And because of Marshall's pleasant temperament, he remained on good terms with justices whose politics were less moderate than his, from the conservative Federalist Samuel Chase to the Jeffersonian Republican William Johnson. As a result of his ability to reach political compromises on the court, Marshall's chief justice's justiceship was marked by a remarkably high degree of unanimity, accompanied by little dissent. During his first 10 years as chief, Marshall wrote 90% of the court's opinions. The exceptions were cases issued when he was writing circuit in which he had a personal interest, and the rare case when he dissented. Marshall would even modify his own opinions in order to gain approval for his opinions for the court. He didn't dominate the court's thinking by force, but instead established and maintained an atmosphere during conferences that was conducive to compromise. So just as he'd won over his political adversaries, Marshall also won over his fellow justices, who were mostly Jeffersonian, through his judicial temperament, devotion to judicial restraint, and commitment to compromise. Even Justice William Johnson, the first dissenter, he was known as the first dissenter because he wrote the court's first recorded dissent, more often than not agreed with Marshall. In 1804, Jefferson had appointed Johnson to the court for the specific purpose of countering Marshall's growing influence on the court. And in a series of increasingly urgent letters in 1822, Jefferson kept urging Johnson to dissent in nearly every case. But Justice Johnson disappointed Jefferson by supporting Marshall's position 96% of the time. (laughs) And even when he dissented, Johnson was apologetic, as in an 1807 case where he wrote, I have the misfortune to dissent from the majority of my brethren. In response to Jefferson's prompting in 1822 to reinstitute seriatim or separate opinions, Uh, which uh, he thought were a means of transparency and would prevent the justices from cowering behind the cloak of unanimity and concealing their true views, Johnson agreed to try to increase his issuance of separate opinions. But he also defended his joining of Marshall in important constitutional questions, asking the president to tell him in which cases he'd erred. Johnson, as some have argued, grew to be under Marshall's spell. When Justice Patterson passed away in 1806, Jefferson appointed Brockholst Livingston, a moderate Republican and leading expert on commercial law to the bench. And in 1807, when Congress created an additional seat to handle cases from new states like Ohio and Kentucky, Jefferson appointed Thomas Todd, who was the Chief Justice of the Kentucky Supreme Court, and a staunch Republican. Though all three, Johnson, Livingston, Patterson, or Jefferson appointees, each of them becomes a valued contributor to the jurisdiction of the Marshall Court. They all fall under Marshall's spell. Under Marshall's leadership, they all come to view the court as an institution and to have their contributions reflected silently in the unanimous decisions the Chief Justice announced. So despite Jefferson's best efforts, the court became what uh, one author called a band of brothers under Marshall's collegial leadership. As Hobson summarizes the golden years of the Marshall Court from 1811 to 1824, in a series of unanimous or near unanimous decisions, The Supreme Court affirmed Congress's implied power, broadly interpreted Congress's power to regulate commerce, struck down state laws that conflicted with the principle of federal supremacy or that violated the Constitution's prohibition against laws impairing the obligation of contracts, asserted broad jurisdiction to decide cases arising under the Constitution and laws of the United States, and sustained its appellate power over the state judiciaries. Marshall's constitutional vision had triumphed. Marshall won over the Jeffersonian justices, not only with Madeira, but also with moderation. As Larry Kramer, uh, a previous uh, lecturer to this distinguished series, explains in his article, Understanding Marbury versus Madison, Marshall and Marbury embraced Jefferson's own conception of judicial review, which was called the departmentalist conception, rather than the high federalist conception of judicial supremacy. As Kramer describes it, the original and quite modest conception of judicial review argued that courts had a role to play in resolving constitutional disputes. Although the people had the ultimate authority to enforce the Constitution and to interpret it, the courts as the people's agents acted to supplement and assist the people who retained primary responsibility for constitutional interpretation and enforcement. An opposing view associated with more radical Republicans questioned the power of judicial review entirely arguing that the people appointed legislators as their agents to pass laws, and that, therefore, the constitutionality of those laws was a question between the people and their representatives. By contrast, the theory of departmentalism, articulated by Madison and Jefferson and ultimately embraced by Marshall, was a combination of these two Republican theories. Each department or branch of government was entitled to offer its views on the Constitution. If disputes arose, they could be resolved by negotiation and accommodation, And if resolution proved impossible, the people could decide among competing interpretations through the democratic process. In other words, the judiciary's interpretation was not the final word, but served as a reference point for further deliberation and public debate. By contrast, the modern understanding of judicial review, in which the courts have the final and exclusive authority to decide constitutional questions, emerged in the 1790s, and was advocated by conservative high Hamiltonian federalists who were anti-populist and looking for ways to strengthen the national government and encourage ordinary citizen between election days to defer passively to constitutional authorities. The election of 1800, Kramer argues, was among other things a referendum on constitutional authority, with the role of the court and the question of judicial supremacy among its central issues the Republicans' landslide victory suggested that the people had rejected judicial supremacy in favor of popular constitutionalism. And in debating the repeal of the 1801 Judiciary Act, a few Republicans even questioned the existence of judicial review in any form. President Jefferson, however, was not among them. He accepted this more moderate departmentalist theory and did not reject judicial review outright. After the election, realizing they were about to lose control of the only only two branches of government with any power, the Federalists tried to lock in control of the third branch as a possible bulwark of national power. Part of their strategy was Marshall's appointment as Chief Justice, and Marshall acknowledged and accepted this responsibility. Therefore, when faced with Marbury and Madison, Marshall decided to make a statement with the goal of getting judicial review into the record to deflect what Kramer calls an incipient movement to delegitimize it. Though Marshall, a Federalist, believed in judicial supremacy, in the opinion, he conspicuously and self-consciously shied away from saying anything that could be read to enforce such an idea. Instead, as Kramer puts it, he carefully and deliberately used only comfortable and familiar Republican arguments in Republican language, and therefore justified judicial review in terms that Republican moderates, like Jefferson, could not only accept, but with which they actually agreed. And by appearing to rule against Marbury, a Federalist, on behalf of Madison, a Republican, Marshall confounded his political enemies. So in other words, Marshall never claimed that the authority to interpret the Constitution rested exclusively with the court. He never claimed that Congress was bound by the court's interpretation, and he avoided the question of enforcement if Congress chose to ignore the court's decision. Though Jefferson was vexed by the lecture that Marshall gave him in dictum, Kramer said he has nothing bad to say about the court's discussion of judicial review, and it was here that Marshall's compromising strategy prevailed. Uh, Jefferson was not stupid, as Kramer concludes. He was perfectly capable of appreciating that other uses could be made of judicial review, but he also was not opposed to it, not in the modest form presented by Marshall in Marbury. So having laid down this moderate marker for judicial review, Marshall advanced his nationalist constitutional vision through judicial restraint. From McCullough to Gibbons and Ogden, to Osborne versus Bank of the United States, Marshall managed to assert nationalistic ideals throughout his tenure on the court, but he delicately expanded both federal and at the same time judicial power by declining to exercise judicial power in a heavy-handed manner. McCullough, which unanimously upheld Congress's power to charter the bank, also displayed Marshall's belief that judicial authority could best be embraced by deference to the democratizing forces of national sovereignty, and conversely, that the cause of national democracy is best served by a strong but restrained judiciary. Throughout his tenure, Marshall not only expansively interpreted the Commerce Clause, he also used the Contract Clause of government to restrain states from interfering with public and private contracts, both to protect vested property interests and to strengthen the union by harnessing the energies of creative entrepreneurs. In the Yazoo Land case, Fletcher and Peck, Marshall established the doctrinal starting point for a series of contract clause decisions. One of Fletcher's progeny, the Dartmouth College case, held that the college's uh, colonial charter qualified as a contract between private parties with which the New Hampshire legislature cannot interfere by attempting to change the privately funded institution into a state university. As Jean Edward Smith notes, aside from its economic impact, few cases better illustrate Marshall's ability to bring his colleagues together. When the cases initially argued You have only Bushrod Washington siding with the Chief Justice. Todd and Duval support the New Hampshire legislature, while the Jeffersonians, Johnston, Livingston, and Story are undecided. Rather than expose a divided court, Marshall held off on announcing a decision. After the recess, the three undecided justices come to his position, and the Chief Justice exerted no pressure on them directly or indirectly, but they had absorbed his notion of the importance of unanimity and ultimately flocked to his cause. I mentioned that Marshall had only one constitutional dissent during his long tenure, and that was Ogden and Saunders uh, from 1827. It was also a contract clause opinion, and it was one of the rare instances where he was unable to convince his colleagues to join him. Uh, Ogden examined the constitutionality of a New York bankruptcy statute, which completely absolved insolvent debtors from all future obligations once they surrendered their assets, leaving creditors to pay the price. The basic question was whether state bankruptcy laws could modify the substance of private contracts. Four justices agreed that the new law was needed for a new age. But Marshall, citing the text of Article I, Section 10 and the Contract Clause, argued that one key feature of the Constitution was to guarantee the integrity of contracts made between rational, moral, responsible individuals. It was Marshall's overriding belief in the sanctity of contracts as the basis for American individualism rooted in Lockean natural law reasoning, which caused him to dissent. For Marshall, the duty of the court was to preserve the vested rights of contract, whether against state governments, as in Fletcher, or individuals who reneged on their promises, as in Ogden. In the later years of the Marshall Court, and with the addition of new justices, Jeffersonian and Jacksonian appointees began to disrupt the practice of unanimity by increasing their dissents. Overall, however, there was still about only one dissent out of uh, nearly 25 cases during the Marshall court, the lowest percentage in the court's history. And Johnson and Livingston wrote almost 60% of the 52 total dissents. So Marshall's emphasis on the importance of unanimity endured long after he left the court in 1835. And in fact, it is his most enduring legacy. Though the rate of non-unanimity doubled under his successor, uh, Chief Justice Taney, uh, until 1941, the rate of dissent remained relatively constant at less than 10% of the opinions. This was partly due to the traits and leadership of Chief Justices who were inspired by Marshall and who succeeded him. Like uh, Chief Justice Fuller, an excellent social leader, blessed with conciliatory and diplomatic traits, or Chief Justice Edward White, a former Senate majority leader, blessed with genial temperament and adroit log-rolling skills that permitted him to mend fences and reinforce consensus norms in the court. But perhaps the most successful chief in promoting consensus after Marshall was the legendary consensus-builder William Howard Taft. Like Marshall, Taft was both a skilled leader and skilled administrative reformer. Like Marshall, Taft encouraged unanimity in practice by acquiescing in opinions with which he did not fully agree. And like Marshall's court, Taft's court was also remarkably cohesive. 84% of the Taft court opinions were unanimous and only 7% of the opinions were issued with a dissent. Taft idolized Marshall who he called the greatest judge that America or the world has produced. Taft's judicial philosophy was greatly influenced by his view of himself as a faithful disciple, both of John Marshall and of Alexander Hamilton. Like Marshall, he was a conservative nationalist, although he called himself a progressive conservative, who viewed state regulations suspiciously, championed the national government, and saw a powerful judiciary as a bulwark for protecting the vested rights that the framers sought to protect. In cases like Stafford and Wallace from 1922, Taft endorsed Marshall's nationalistic jurisprudence by upholding broad federal power under the Commerce Clause. As chief, he held with Holmes that the Commerce Clause must be applied to the real and practical essence of modern business growth, sustaining laws ranging from the Packer and Stockyards Act and the Grain Futures Act to the Motor Vehicle Theft Act. I wonder how well that one worked. Like Marshall, Taft deferred in important cases to Congress's power to regulate the economy. Although Taft announced at an early conference of the justices that he had been appointed to reverse a few decisions, and he said, I looked right at old man Holmes when I said that, he soon joined Holmes in dissent in the 1923 case, Atkins v. Children's Hospital, where the course famously struck down a federal minimum wage law for women. In the Atkins case, from which Brandeis was recused because he had argued, of course, the Mueller case sustaining maximum hour laws for women that uh, was at issue in Atkins, Justice Sutherland held that freedom of contract can only be abridged in exceptional circumstances. Taft, like Marshall, was devoted to freedom of contract, But he had served as chair of the National War Labor Board in World War One and expressed doubt about how people could live on the wages of the munitions and textile workers. It's not the function of this court to hold congressional acts invalid simply because they're passed to carry out economic views, which the court believes to be unwise or unsound. That sounds, of course, like Justice Holmes in Lochner. In fact, it was Chief Justice Taft dissenting in Atkins. Taft believed that Lochner had had been overruled sub silentio in the Bunting case, which Brandeis argued, and he insisted on the sanctity of stare decisis. By contrast, in a case called Bailey against Drexel Furniture in 1922, Taft struck down a federal child labor tax law which taxed businesses employing children under the age of 14. For Taft, the child labor tax was not in fact a tax, but an impermissible attempt to regulate a subject matter forbidden by the Tenth Amendment. And in that case, Taft quoted Marshall in McCullough, should Congress in the execution of its powers adopt measures which are prohibited by the Constitution, it would become the painful duty of this tribunal, should a case requiring such a decision come before it to say that the act was not the law of the land. Now, Taft failed to include the entire quote from Marshall's opinion, which then explained that when the law is not prohibited and is really calculated to affect any of the objects entrusted to government, then a judicial inquiry into the law's necessity goes too far and treads onto legislative ground. Alpheus Mason, Taft's biographer and also Brandeis's, writes of the child labor case that the opinion would have made the great nationalist, Chief Justice Marshall, turn over in his grave. But what's remarkable about the, the Bailey case is that Brandeis joined it. Taft's ambition to mask the court was so successful that he persuaded not only Brandeis, but also Holmes and Stone, the usual dissenters and defenders of federal power, to join a unanimous court in the child labor decision, suppressing their likely disagreement. Brandeis's decision not to dissent was especially significant since he had voted to uphold a federal child labor law in 1918 before Taft joined the court. During Taft's early years, it was typical for justices to write on slip opinions, I do not agree, but shall submit. Taft's leadership style, in other words, consistently and directly emulated that of Marshall. He was a respected and well-liked leader, an effective chief, who who won the respect, admiration, and friendship of his fellow justices. Taft believed that an important task of the chief was to promote teamwork by the court so as to give weight and solidarity to its opinions. As Taft explained, I don't approve of dissent generally, for I think in many cases where I differ from the majority, it's more important to stand by the court and give its judgment weight than merely to record my individual dissent, where it's better to have the law certain than to have it settled either way. Taft also criticized dissents as mere expressions of egotism and held that it was much more important to say what the court thinks than to say what anyone thinks. Taft would suppress his own ego and modify his own opinions in order to reach the same conclusions as his colleagues. In Wisconsin and Illinois from 1929, for example, Taft had worked for an entire summer on an opinion, advancing a very broad theory of federal commerce power, but to maintain unanimity, he agreed to suppress his own views. So as Marshall was able to bring the Jeffersonian justices to join the opinions of the court, so too was Taft able to win over Justice Louis D. Brandeis, a Jeffersonian Democrat, to join unanimous opinions and to withhold dissent. Taft, as I mentioned, had vigorously opposed Brandeis's nomination in 1916. His opposition to Brandeis's nomination was both personal and philosophical, focusing on his own ambitions to be Chief Justice and the grudge he nursed about uh, the Pinchot-Ballinger affair, which was a hugely significant dispute about the firing of one of Roosevelt's uh, partisans, a conservation official in the Interior Department, who Brandeis uh, investigated and basically accused Taft of lying in a congressional hearing. And the philosophical differences were just as stark as those between Marshall and Jefferson. Because just as Taft's hero was John Marshall, Brandeis idealized Thomas Jefferson. So in my new book, did I mention it's coming out on June 1st, (laughs) I argue that Brandeis, who was content to be a Jeffersonian, was the greatest critic of size in corporations and government since Jefferson himself. Uh, And I can't resist giving you a little excerpt because it will give you a sense of the passion with which Jefferson identified as a Jeffersonian, and therefore the magnitude of Taft's achievement in winning him over to the cause of unanimity. Brandeis served on the Supreme Court from 1916 to 1932. Mel Urofsky is gonna give a wonderful lecture in the fall commemorating the 100th anniversary of his confirmation. Was the leader of a Jeffersonian tradition that's as distinctive in the 21st century as it was during the New Deal era. A progressive champion of federalism and the autonomy of the states. At the same time, Brandeis embodies a bipartisan constitutional tradition that's once again gaining broad adherence on both sides of the political spectrum, from Tea Party and Libertarian conservatives to Occupy liberals, namely he was a defender of personal and economic liberty and a foe of centralization in business and government. The states fulfilled his Jeffersonian belief that small-scale communities were most likely to satisfy human needs and to allow citizens to develop their faculties, to use his beautiful phrase in the Whitney case, through the rigorous self-education that Brandeis thought was necessary for full participation in American democracy. At a time of intense polarization between conservatives and libertarians, Who prefer small government and free enterprise, and liberals and progressives who advocate a more energetic social welfare state. Brandeis is the historical figure who represents and blends the ideals of both sides of this crucial debate. He endorsed the Jeffersonian ideals of small government and local democracy, but he applied those ideals to uphold regulations that tamed the excesses of big business and monopoly. He offers, therefore, a unifying vision of liberty and democracy for our divided age. Like Jefferson, Brandeis believed that the greatest threat to our constitutional liberties was an uneducated citizenry, and that democracy could not survive both ignorant and free. And because of Brandeis's pragmatic sense of human limitations, he believed that only in small-scale businesses and communities could individuals master the facts that were necessary for personal and political self-government. For this reason, as a Supreme Court Justice, he generally championed judicial deference to state legislation, except when it clashed with protections explicitly enumerated in the Constitution, such as the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. In those cases, he became the most prescient defender of civil liberties of the 20th century. Brandeis was sympathetic to Jefferson's views on political economy, and he developed Jefferson's distinction between merchant bankers, who lent their own capital for productive enterprises, and monopolists who underwrote risky instruments with what Brandeis unforgettably called other people's money. Brandeis especially admired Jefferson's notion of limited government, his vision in foreseeing the conservation problem, which would come up after the disappearance of free land, his far-reaching mind, which Brandeis considered more cultivated than the comparatively unlearned Lincoln, he was a tough grader, and his conviction that with time and education, citizens would have as little need of government as possible. So Brandeis is often painted as a uh, progressive uh, and a defender of government regulation. I'm trying to resurrect the deeply Jeffersonian roots of his thought, which make him, I think, the greatest heir of Jefferson in the 20th century. In other words, Brandeis was a Jeffersonian defender of states' rights, and Taft, a Marshallian defender of national power. In the election of 1912, their policy views Dramatically diverged. Taft wanted to prosecute the trusts in the megabanks for antitrust violations. Brandeis and Wilson wanted to break them up so they could be taxed by the states. And Theodore Roosevelt wanted to create star- strong regulatory bodies to oversee them. But if Taft and Brandeis differed fundamentally in their views about federal power, They shared a devotion to interpret the Constitution in light of changed circumstances. Brandeis, of course, was the most important advocate of interpreting the Constitution in light of new technologies of the 20th century, which makes him the greatest prophet of free speech and privacy of the 20th century. But it's surprising, or I was surprised uh, to learn as I began my work, that Taft, like Brandeis, was not an originalist. He believed too that the court's highest and most useful function involved the translation of legal principles to meet new conditions. The idea as Taft put it, that judges should interpret the exact intentions of those who established the constitution was the theory of one who does not understand the proper administration of justice. Frequently new conditions arise, which those who were responsible for the written law could not have had in view and to which existing common law principles have never before been applied, and it becomes necessary for the court to make new applications of both. As a result, Taft wrote, there will be found a response to sober popular opinion as it changes to meet the exigency of social, political, and economic changes. Brandeis struck very similar notes in a talk called The Living Law, where he declared that post-1912 decisions deferring to maximum hour laws for women reflected what he called a judicial awakening to the facts of life, a realization that no law, written or unwritten, can be understood without a full knowledge of the facts out of which arises and to which it is to be applied. But the struggle for the living law has not been fully won, he said, as evidenced by the fact that the Lochner case had not been expressly overruled. For Brandeis, the remedy came as always in self-education. Lawyers and judges had to be trained in the facts of modern life, by the study of economics and sociology and politics, which embody the facts and present the problems of today. Escaping from the specialization of corporate lawyers, Brandeis held up instead the model of what he called the all-around lawyer, trained in small communities, representing rich and poor, employers and employees, who took some part in political life. And Brandeis concluded that our greatest justices, Marshall, Kent, Story, and Shaw secured this training, as had Alexander Hamilton, whom Brandeis called an apostle of the living law. Brandeis might, of course, have been describing himself. By praising Marshall as one of the greatest of judges, the Jeffersonian Brandeis was endorsing Marshall's pragmatic notion that legislatures should have wide discretion to experiment with economic innovations without being second-guessed by courts. As Mason writes, both Brandeis and Taft advocated knowledge by lawyers of economics and sociology. Brandeis believed that the awareness of the factual basis of social action would stimulate judicial self-restraint, Mason writes. Taft, on the other hand, advocated knowledge of the sociology of economics so that lawyers and judges could more effectively carry on their sacred mission of preserving those institutions without which America could not long survive, based on Taft's notion that our Constitution rests on personal liberty and the right of property. Because of their mutual respect, and because of their recognition of the importance of unanimity for the court's institutional legitimacy, Taft and Brandeis were able to join together on many opinions, despite their very competing judicial philosophies. Like Marshall and Ogden, Taft rejected a positivist theory of law to concur with the notions of Holmes and Brandeis as to the importance of considering the lessons learned from sociology and economics. Taft enthusiastically praised two of Brandeis's opinions involving railway companies' challenges to dismissed claims and land valuations. And in turn, Brandeis embraced the norm of consensus of the Taft court, which established among the justices expectations of reciprocity. As Brandeis remarked to Felix Frankfurter, there's a limit to the frequency with which you can dissent without exasperating men. You may have a very important case of your own as to which you do not want to antagonize on a less important case, etc." Etc. For these reasons, some scholars have argued that although from October 1921 through July 1929, Taft wrote a prodigious 249 opinions for the court, uh, his unique, most lasting achievement was not jurisprudential. Rather, it was his ability to achieve unanimity and his success as an administrator of the complicated functions and activities of the court and his role as supervisor of federal courts throughout the country. Marshall was a great administrator too, and Taft would have been pleased when after his death, Augustus Hand, then the federal district judge in New York, described Taft as the greatest figure as Chief Justice since John Marshall. After Taft left the court in 1930, the number of unanimous decisions started to decline and the number of dissents increased. But it wasn't until the 1940s that the consensus norm utterly collapsed partly because Chief Justice Stone, former Dean of Columbia Law School, was Jeffersonian in his encouragement of seriatim opinions and dissents. One of the other causes for the increasing number of dissents, ironically, was the change in the docket from mandatory to discretionary review uh, initiated by the Judiciary Act of 1925, which was a reform that Taft himself had championed. As Dean Robert Post of Yale argues, the Act of 25 represented a fundamental transformation of the role of the Supreme Court, Before the act, the court was primarily a tribunal of ultimate resort. It was the highest and last source of appellate review, whose chief function was correctly to discern and to protect the federal rights of litigants. But the act's sharp constriction of the court's mandatory appellate jurisdiction completely overrode this obstinate conception that the court was to be the vindicator of all federal rights. And the act's extraordinary enlargement of the court's discretionary appellate jurisdiction Expressed a profound recharacterization of the court's function. Marshall died on July 6, 1835, having outlived Jefferson by nine years. According to Justice Story, his final words were a prayer for the Union. In strength and depth and comprehensiveness of mind, Story wrote in Marshall's eulogy, it would be difficult to name his superior. Even the gimlet-eyed Justice Holmes once remarked that if American law were to be represented by a single figure, skeptic and worshiper alike would agree that the figure could be one alone and that alone, John Marshall. As Michael Gerhardt, who is the National Constitution Center's superb scholar in residence has written, Marshall seems to have keenly understood the importance of treating one's enemies as well as one could. It is no accident that Marshall in spite of his strong constitutional opinions, commanded the respect of almost everyone with whom he served in spite of the fact that most did not share his ideology. I can't resist noting, as I close, that the National Constitution Center has inaugurated another project of which I'm convinced Marshall would have enthusiastically approved. We have brought together the Federalist Society the leading uh, conservative and libertarian lawyers organization in America, and the American Constitution Society, the leading liberal and progressive organization, to create the best interactive Constitution on the World Wide Web. Scholars nominated by both groups are writing about every provision of the Constitution. And they begin by drafting a common statement describing their areas of agreement. And then they draft two separate statements describing areas of disagreement. These common statements are like Marshall's unanimous majority opinions, and you can have confidence that every word in these statements about every provision of the Constitution is one that both sides can accept. By contrast, the separate statements are like the Jeffersonian expression of seriatim, concurrences, or dissents. I am thrilled to report that the College Board has decided to make this remarkable new tool a centerpiece of the new AP history and US government exams, and I encourage all of you to check it out and to learn from it at constitutioncenter.org. We think that it has the potential in Marshall's bipartisan spirit to transform constitutional education in America. The greatest tribute to Marshall's enduring influence is not only that he won over his Jeffersonian colleagues on the court. He also inspired future chief justices such as Taft to go on to win over their ideological opponents, including Brandeis, the greatest Jeffersonian of the 20th century, by exhibiting a similar willingness to restrain the expression of personal views for the sake of unanimity and institutional harmony. There are so many famous tributes to Marshall on which I could close. Uh, Thayer, in his great biography, quotes Daniel Webster praising Marshall for the prevalence of sound constitutional opinion held the union together. Thayer and Webster attributed this to a large sweet nature which all men loved and trusted, capable of harmonizing differences and securing the largest possible amount of cooperation among discordant associates. But the most succinct and powerful and meaningful tribute to Marshall on his 215th anniversary comes from Chief Justice Hughes. Marshall's preeminence was due to the fact that he was John Marshall. Thank you so much.
0: This show was engineered by Jason Gregory. It was produced by yours truly. The host of We the People is Jeffrey Rosen. He will be back next week. We need your help to make this podcast even better. Go to bit.ly WTPfeedback to share your feedback. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash constitutionctr, and our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People if you're not already. While you're in the iTunes store, leave us a rating and review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, also in iTunes, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center, across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the people as a member of Slate's Panoply Network, check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And finally... Despite our Congressional Charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Nakondro Yanachi.